Babies make people happy. But God doesn't want us to stay babies, does he? No. He wants us to grow up. He wants us to be mature. He doesn't want us running around with little bibbies. There's a time for bibs, pacifiers, even as Christians. But there is a time to grow up. Let's open up to Colossians chapter 1. As we continue our study through the book of Colossians, we'll read verses 9 to 14. Take a moment. We'll get that on the overhead. There we go. Paul says, and so from the day, oh, there we are. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you have qualified us. That at one time we were qualified for nothing but spiritual death, Father. We were dead in sin and transgressions, Father God. We were walking according to the prince of the power of the air. And we were by nature children of wrath, Father God. But when grace and mercy came, Father God, you made us co-heirs with Christ through faith in what he has done for us at the cross, God. So we thank you, Father God, that we are not bound by sin, by Satan, and by death anymore, Father God. You have truly transferred us into the kingdom of your beloved Son. Breathe upon the text tonight, Holy Spirit, so that you can give illumination to our mind and encouragement to our hearts as we understand the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Last week in our study of Colossians, we looked at the first eight verses of Scripture. And in it, we see Paul's deep gratitude, a deep gratitude for God's work through the gospel. Specifically, Paul had a great uh, gratitude for a man named Epaphras and his faithful preaching. He called him a a, a dear, beloved brother and faithful minister of the gospel. Epaphras was a man who did not waver from the truth. He didn't compromise the truth. He he preached the gospel in Christ the way he heard it from the apostle Paul. He taught about a, a hope that was laid up in heaven. He spoke about peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And people believed. This church, the Colossians, they believed. They had a faithful, believing hope in this message that was preached by Epaphras. This gospel of truth. They embraced this message of hope that was stored up for them in heaven. It wasn't a warm, fuzzy message about what God can do for them today. It was about eternal life. It was about eternal salvation. It was about one true God. One true will and how to worship God, how to live for God, how to please God. And what Christ has done on their behalf. They embraced this. They left paganism. They left darkness to embrace this one true and living God. And Paul was deeply grateful for this. 
And the Colossians naturally had the first fruits of salvation. That was a love, a genuine love for each other. They were concerned for each other. They had this active, dynamic love that was directed towards other people's needs. That is the body of Christ. That's the community of faith. We're, we're directed towards other human beings. We're not just concerned for our own welfare anymore. We're, we're generally concerned for the welfare of other people. We're concerned where people are at in their life. That's what was happening in this church. And Paul reminded them that they're not alone. They're part of a, a universal church. That this, this gospel message was bearing fruit throughout the whole known world. The whole Mediterranean world was producing fruit out of this gospel that Paul was preaching. They were part of something much bigger. Their little local church was part of a universal, eternal church. Though the world cannot see it, we know the invisible church is real. We're born again. And Paul was reminding them that you're not alone in this world. You're part of something much greater, much bigger, much grander. We need to be reminded of that. That we're part of something great. We're part of something eternal, something universal. I remember when I first got saved, uh, I didn't realize that everybody, I, there was Christians everywhere. There was Christians at work. There was Christians in my family. There was, there was Bible studies here. I, I didn't see none of that when I wasn't saved. I thought like Christianity was this brand new thing. I, I realized that there's gospel radio, there's music, there's concerts, there's, there's coffee houses. This is, it was everywhere. Everywhere you looked, there was gospel people. It's a beautiful thing. But Paul moves on to something different now in these verses. He moves from a grateful thanksgiving to God for his work begun for, to pray now for his work to continue. Paul takes great care to properly thank God for what he began in the Colossians church. But he painfully knows what lies ahead. As parents, we can embrace our children. We love our children. We love little Elliot, we, little Fiona. We have these little babies, and they make us happy, and, and we're joyful, and we're grateful, aren't we? But we know what painfully lies ahead. They have to be prepared for life. And so it is in the Christian life. When someone comes out of the spiritual womb, there's great joy. Even the angels in heaven rejoice. And, and I rejoice, and John rejoices, and, and leaders and elders, we rejoice. But we hold on, because we know what painfully lies ahead. Paul knows this. He knows it's not easy. He's not going to leave well enough alone. He knows there's wolves in the camp. He knows that Satan is around uh, every corner. He understands that temptation can pay, take people out. He realizes that many can be a flash in the pan. It can be this great new work, and all of a sudden it just fizzles out because people aren't growing and people aren't maturing and and understanding the, the full knowledge of God. Uh, this church is saved, but it's, it's not strong. And Paul wants this uh, church to be strong. And that's his prayer here. I like that he generally gives thanks for the work begun. He can see a genuine work, though he sees the wolf, he sees Satan, he sees the devil... He sees the weakness of the flesh. He sees the false teachers. He gives proper thanks where it belongs. Then he says, we've got to roll up our sleeves. We have to go to work now. We have to pray that this work continue in your heart. And it's interesting that Paul writes out his prayer for them. He's being transparent. It's, 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 it's a good approach to ministry. 
to be transparent on how much someone means to you, how the congregation means to you. And he's writing out their prayer for them. He's giving an inside view of their heart. And that is important for the ministry to know. Within the ministry, we should share our heart. We should let people know our affection for the congregation, how much we really do generally care for your growth in Christ. We labor in vain, Paul says, until Christ is what? Is formed in you. So we're not tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine and, uh, you know, like little children, that we grow to be mature to the full stature and nature, which is only found in Christ, who never once was wavered from the truth of who God is. Only Christ. He could have easily wrote to them that he wanted them to grow. Even John used 1 Thessalonians before that he exhorted them to grow in good works. In Titus, he commands them to do. In Ephesians, he reminds them to. But here he prays. He prays like Jesus prayed in John 17. That they would walk or live in a manner worthy of the Lord. That they would have a life, their inner life, with an outward expression, would be pleasing to God. Remember something, it's not what we do. It's why we do anything in the Christian life. We can do a lot of things, a lot of religious activity, a lot of good things. As a matter of fact, I can, I can speak with the tongues of angels and with the tongues of men. And I can prophesy, know all knowledge, know all mysteries. Uh, but if I don't love, I'm a clinging gong and a brassy symbol. I can take all my money, give it to the poor, I can give my body, burn it at the stake. But if I have not loved, I have not pleased the Lord. So it's not what we do. It generally... Why we do anything that matters to God. He also prays for their needed spiritual endurance of the Holy Spirit. Like I said before, he doesn't want this church to be a flash in the pan. He doesn't want it to be, oh, how good it is and how great they're doing. Paul knew painfully through reality that many people come and say amen just to disappear. Or live fruitless lives. Even Jesus teaches that in John 15. As past, as we know, it's a, it's a joyful time when people are saved and uh, we believe there's a genuine conversion and we have baptism. That's a, a precious time. But for me, and I know John feels the same, we speak about this and pray about this quite often. It's, 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 it's wonderful when you see people going through their first trials in the Christian life. Their baptism of fire. Because that tells you what's going on in the inside. That really tells you that someone is loving the Lord. That someone is saved. That someone has generally stepped out of darkness and into light. They're painful times. Even Jesus told Peter, I pray for your faith. That your faith sustain you. Because Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. You know, and it's those times. They're, 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 hard, they're trying times. And I can tell you now, I've seen people go through death, sickness, cancer, uh, all sorts of uh, tribulations. I've seen people run to Christ. Seen them run to Christ. You would think to be the total opposite, but they're at every prayer meeting. They're at every Bible study. They don't miss anything anymore. Life around them can be look like it's falling apart, but on the inside, they have to hold on to Jesus. And I've seen other people, they lose a job and God's gone. He's gone. Can't trust him. So, to be sustained in the Christian faith, to have perseverance, what he prays for here is very real. Paul knew there's a genuine work going on here, but he was fully aware 
of what lies ahead. And we need to understand that. And, and, but this, this prayer that he's praying this really goes to express uh, his deep concern for their continued growth. He wasn't just happy that people were saved. That's the evangelist. But the pastor's heart gets down, they roll up their sleeves, and they get personal with people's lives. He, he, he's truly a pastor here. He's not a missionary now. He's not writing as an evangelist. Uh, yes, he's an apostle. He makes that known. He's not trying to, to speak over their heads as a theologian. He's entering into their life. He's coming, he's rolling up their sleeves, and he's walking through life with them. That's important for us to know. And he's expressing that in this prayer. And he wants them to come to the full knowledge that only God can give. And that's important for us to know. He, he's asking God to do something only God can do. Only God can change the leopard's heart. Only God can give a new heart. Paul could preach and teach. Apollos can come by. He can preach and teach. But Paul says only God can give what? Give the increase. Paul knows that. We need to know that. It doesn't remind, uh, the change of the human heart doesn't rely on how much I try. I can read the Bible all I want. But unless I'm asking God to change my heart into Christ-likeness, nothing's going to happen. It's just information. Paul knows that. There's an object lesson here on, on praying for change. It's not just taught. We need to seek it in prayer. It's also important to remember as we go through this text that that is something that only God can do as we go through this text. It's not our ability. The main idea of the text is found in verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. That, that's Paul's concern here. Paul's like they're saved there's genuine faith. There's genuine good preaching. There's a, uh, the, the, the virtue of love is being expressed. A genuine concern for each other. A community of believers is definitely being established here. It's definitely being rooted. But he wants them now to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, which he qualifies as this, fully pleasing to him. Now that's a mouthful because you would think that needs to be perfect, right? And, but thank goodness that's not what it means. You know, we can have our heart truly set on the Lord. We can fall left and right, but our heart could be truly set on waking up every day with the true cry of God. I love you. I want to live for you. I know I got my flesh. I got the world. I got Satan that contends against me. But I know this for sure. I want to be pleasing Amen. to you. Amen. That's the Christian's heart. I'm not going to say it's going to work out that way. But I know, not just speaking for myself, but that's, that's the cry of the Christian. It's the cry of the Holy Spirit. You have to have that cry. It's produced by God himself. That's the main idea of the text. That's what Paul envisions here. A church that's walking in the manner worthy of the Lord, meaning that you walk in a manner worthy of him who came and died on your behalf. He's worthy to become a living sacrifice now, to give it all up for the Lord. He's worthy. And we're going to talk about that as we get into the text a little bit. But God is worthy. Do you know that? Do you know he qualified you? Do you know he took you out of darkness 
We were in servitude to Satan and sin and fear of death before Christ came into our life. And he transferred us into the kingdom of the good shepherd. Where no one can steal us out of his hand. He's worthy to live for. He's worthy to die for. And that's Paul's prayer. Only God can produce that in them. And he describes this life as fully pleasing to the Lord as a life that's bearing fruit. Jesus talks about bearing fruit. He talks about God being the husband and, 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 and trimming the leaves, trimming the branches of the vine. So it bears fruit. He describes it as every good work. We'll get into this later on as we go along. The means to all this is found in the surrounding verses. If we could put the overhead up there, if we can get 9 to uh, 14 up there somehow. The means to this walking in a manner worthy of the Lord that's fully pleasing to him. In verse 9 is to know the mind of God. What is God's will? If I'm going to... Oh, that's too small. Yeah. All right, yeah. Oh, goodness gracious. All right. But verse 9 starts to qualify his heart. He wants them to grow in a life that's pleasing to the Lord. And, and verse 9 says, well, we have to do that. We have to grow in the full knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's important. And, and if you want to put up verses 11 to 14, and, and the overwhelming power comes from gratitude for what Christ has done. So there's a learning curve here. We learn the full knowledge of the will of God in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And also at the same time, we always keep an eye on that we're already qualified. I'm not learning knowledge and spiritual wisdom to be qualified. We are qualified. We are delivered. I'm not going to learn this to be delivered. I am delivered from the power of Satan, from the power of sin and the fear of death. I got to learn to live in that. I don't have to do these things to learn about God. There's no secret mysteries I need to know so that I can be transferred into the kingdom of his dear son. We're already there by grace. That's the motivating factor to learning. We don't learn more about God. We don't want to live in the will of God out of fear. We did not receive a spirit of fear, but a spirit of what? Spirit of sonship. Which is the power of love, sound mind, and self-control. Sonship Ministries. Reading Romans 15, well over 20 years ago, and I just, it just jumped in my heart. In the NIV it says, you did not receive a spirit of fear, but a spirit of sonship. And, and it gripped me. It gripped me. And all those years ago, we bought that on domain long before this was a ministry. Ten years we had it before you know, God ever gave us a ministry. And because that's Christianity. It's the spirit of sonship. It's the spirit of Abba Father. It's the spirit of we want to please God. All the information I learn, if it's ten commandments or a thousand commandments, all get filtered down into a heart that wants to please God. It doesn't produce a heart that wants to please God. God's given us that. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. That comes with regeneration. It comes with being born again. God gives us a love for himself. And all knowledge and all learning of what Christ has done, we'll get into the text, only goes to support our love for God. It's not knowledge for knowledge's sake. So if it's 10 commandments, 10,000 commandments, it makes no difference. We love the Lord. We love the Lord. So 
The main idea is to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. Uh, the means to that end is constantly growing and being nurtured by understanding of Christ, growing in spiritual wisdom and understanding, and also always remembering that we are qualified, we are transferred, and we do belong to the kingdom of His dear Son now. That will never be taken away from us. No fear, nothing can steal it, nothing can take us out of His hands, nothing can erase our names from the Lamb's book of life. We are there, we're there forever. That is the motivating factor to live for God. It's grace first, then good works later. That's the way it works in the kingdom of God. Our sermon is going to be broken down as this. It's probably going to take two weeks. We'll speak about what is the will of God in its two aspects. One is doctrinal, one is ethical and moral. Uh, we will speak about the four characteristics of a life that is pleasing to the Lord that's found in this text. We'll speak about the three reasons that motivate us of being qualified, being transferred and, uh, into the kingdom of his son and being delivered. We'll speak about that more next week. But let's go to our text in verse 9. I'm going to read verse 9 and give an illustration. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. I've used this illustration before. I had uh, three good friends of mine that had small children, the ages from 6 to 10, and they all had something in common. One had a house on a lake, one had a house on the beach, one had a house with a pool. And there's something interesting about all the children. They had something in common. At an early age, they all knew how to swim. Because a pool is a wonderful thing, the ocean is a wonderful thing, and a lake is a wonderful thing. But if you don't know how to swim and you have children, it's not wonderful. It's dangerous. And you can't enjoy it. And that's the world we live in. We live in a world with danger all around us. There's false teaching about Christ. There's false teachings about God. There's a false gospel. There's a misunderstanding. God is misrepresented in every quarter of society, even within Christianity, unfortunately. And what happens, it becomes a minefield. And if we're not careful, if we don't have the discernment, that's what Paul's praying here, a discernment, then we're not going to properly please God. You know something, we're not going to enjoy Him. We're not going to enjoy God. This church was under attack. They were saved by grace, and people were starting to come in and tell them, you know something, you need to fast a little more. You need to keep the Sabbath a little more. They, all this kind of religious gymnastics and activities to try to please God. And this, this was a problem. And Paul was writing to them to... to uh, to, uh, to defend the true gospel. And so it's important for us to really, if we're going to live as Christians in this world, with darkness and false teaching all around and misconceptions about God, and even the misconceptions we still carry with us, because we've got pagan blood running through our veins, and we try to make God and His will do what? Support ours. It's not about the full knowledge of his will. That's a scary thought. Think about it. The full knowledge of divine will. Guess what's not left anymore? Your will and mine. It's gone. It's annihilated. Only Christ is left. And that's intimidating. But that's what God has for us. And when we walk in that, it is blissful. It is peaceful. It is contentment to the soul. The full knowledge. Phil means to be complete. That God has revealed to us a mystery that we can know. 
It's not something we feel around. It's not this abstract thought, you know, this ethereal thing that's out there. We just can't grasp at the will of God. Islam has their understanding of the will of God. Judaism has their understanding of the will of God. The New Ages have their understanding of the will of God. Catholicism has their understanding of the will of God. Kabbalah has its understanding of the will of God. Uh, Scientology has their understanding of the divine will. It's all out there. But the truth of marriage, you can only find it in Christ. And that's what this book was written about. All the will of God and the wisdom of God and the knowledge of God is all found in Jesus Christ. Anybody who speaks about divine will, divine knowledge, divine understanding, mysteries, and it's not pointing to the finished work of Christ and the deity of Christ, is off. No matter how compelling of an argument they can make. Makes no difference. So Paul wants us to be wants them to be filled with this full knowledge, and, and the full knowledge is, is as I said, it's it's doctrinal and it's moral, a full knowledge of God's will in the plan of redemption, with its ethical implications. Paul is thrilled that they're saved, but he wants them to understand all there is to know about who Christ is and what He has accomplished for them at the cross, with all its implications. That takes work. That takes a lot of work. That takes years. There's a learning curve of growing. Pleasing God deeper and deeper. Sure, I want to believe I pleased God the first five years of my salvation, but after 25 years, I'm still learning that I still want to please Him. And there's still more I need to know about the Lord on how to please Him in my inner life. You know, when we're first saved, God takes care of the scandalous nature. You ever hear that? You know, the drunkenness. You know, beating the wife, that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? God, God deals with that right away. You know, you know, put the put the hand down, Brian. You know that kind of stuff. And it's a little caricature, but we take care of the cursing, the swearing, the, the lying, the, all that kind of stuff. You know, he he cleans our act up, doesn't he? He does a pretty good job in the first three five years of salvation. But then you're growing up, and you're going, man, I'm rotten on the inside. <laughs> I'm like, when is it going to end? I'm really rotten on the inside. I'm married 31 years. I love my wife, and I still have to learn who she is. Seven days of vacation just taught us that. I needed a vacation from the vacation. But we all understand. We're making a light. But, you know, we, should, we can have a light heart about it because God does a deeper, deeper work on our hearts, on our minds, the pride that runs so deep, all the hidden areas of our heart that still aren't sanctified. There are things that are lying in our heart, our mind don't even conceive of yet. We're capable of anything. We can be time bombs if we're not careful. So God wants us to grow. Paul wants them to grow. God wants us to grow. This knowledge is knowing that Christ is the fulfillment of all God's redemptive Purposes, And I say this before, I mean, John said it all the time, we don't apologize. The Bible does not apologize for making God's people think. We're not going to be apologetic. Well, you know something, you have, to, you have to think a little bit. No, this is God's plan of redemption. These Gentiles were brought into, not this new work of God, these Gentiles 2,000 years ago were brought into a work that started in the garden, right outside the garden, when God saved Adam and Eve, and God saved Abel along a whole line to Abraham, to Moses, to the, to the prophets, to David, to the coming of the, uh, of the Messiah, and, and, and he's still doing it today. We're part of a long succession of something. We're, we're, we're steeped in Old Testament religion. 
for many people, their, their salvation is, it goes back to Azuzu Street. The Pentecostals don't really go past Azuzu Street. They're, they're, they're 100 years old. They stay there. Other people just only go back to maybe Luther and maybe Calvin. And some people go back a little further. But we, God wants us to go all the way back into Moses, into Abraham, into, in, into the, the first 11 chapters of Genesis and understand that we are part of something that God has been doing since day one. And it's called the kingdom of his beloved son. That we are part of something bigger and grander than just being saved. That is growing up. And that's what Paul wants them to know. That this salvation is to open to all people. Jew and Gentile. Rich and poor. Barbarian. It makes no difference to God. Everybody is welcome no matter how steeped in sin, darkness and paganism, unbelief, dope addiction... Atheism, religion, anybody's in. It's open, free, and full to anybody who comes to Christ. And that it is full and free. It does not need to be supplemented with religious practices. I was speaking to my wife over the week as I'm going through the going through this book, studying it out. And for us today, it's hard to enter in two thousand years ago to the ongoing Judaism that was attacking the early Christian church in all its different nuances. But for many of us coming out of Roman Catholicism, it's not a far cry. We understand what it means to be taught to please God through penance and through rosaries and through sacraments. You know, but there was an emptiness there. There was, there was something still missing. You know, we tried to please God. We, you know, we, we grew up. And, and someone pointed us in the direction and said, this is what you do. And, and we did it, but, but it didn't produce a life that was pleasing to the Lord. So what's going on in this church, they were saved. But people were coming in with all these strange teachings. Fasting, washings, Sabbath keeping, circumcision, new moons. All these kind of things to please God. And, and Paul basically says in, 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 in chapter 2 verse 10. You're complete in Christ. You're complete. Stop the madness. Stop right now. Your faith in Christ has made you complete. In the eyes of God you cannot be any more accepted or perfect anymore. He looks at you as he looks at his dear son. You're a co-heir. Understand something. What I just said is hated by the religious establishment. Because I have no power over God's children. You're God's children. My job is to remind you who you are in Christ every week. And let God change your heart. Let God work holiness into your life. Let God work love into your life. Let God work humility into your life. Let God work giving into your life. Not me. That's not my job. Not to manipulate you. It's not our job. This teaching is is needed as much today as it was 2,000 years ago. Satan doesn't change. He doesn't reinvent the wheel too much. He polishes it up, puts a little paint on it, and sends it back out again. Did God say? That's all. And just as important as how Christians are to live and act in any circumstance, they find them. That's the ethical implications. We are equipped now with the fruit of the Spirit. 
People don't understand the Christian. We don't have no temple. We have no shrines. We have no statues. We have no ceremonies. We have no rituals except for uh, water baptism and the Lord's Supper. We come with Bibles in our heart, Bibles in our hands, Bibles on the overheads. We preach, we teach, we sing, and guess what happens? We change. We change. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the power of the gospel. We're not to supplement that anyway. We're not to change that anyway. We're not to compromise that anyway. We are to be faithful as Epaphras was, as Jesus was, as Paul was, as Luther was, as Calvin was, and many men and women ever since. We are to be faithful to the truth, and that is the power of God to save the Jew first and then the Gentile. That's what changes a leopard spot. That's what takes a sinner and makes him into a saint. It's just preaching. The truth. This is an absolute total contrast to the religious establishment. It was in a total contrast of the people that were sneaking into this church that were telling them that you had to do these all these sorts of things. Now, to you and I, most of us, that sounds crazy. But to a young Christian, you'll believe anything. Why do you think young Christians are giving their money left and right because they think they're going to get blessed? Because you could tell them anything. Why? Because they love God. A young Christian loves God, but if you don't have discernment, you'll listen to just about anything. I start watching all the time. We're in this a long time. Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. That some kind of religious activity is needed to be done in an effort to please God. In today's world, really, you know, I don't want to beat this down, but unless you're tithing, people say you can't be pleasing to God. All the commandments of God have been taken care of by Christ, but tithing. And if I could tell you the damage that teaching has done to so many young Christians. Tithing is not a commandment. It's a devotion we do from the heart. God doesn't bless me because I give a little more, or I I, I don't give as much, or God blesses me more than he blesses you. He blesses a joyful giver. Give freely from the heart. That's it. But people manipulate and they hold the tithe over people's heads as though, well, you know something, there are people in the church that do and there are people in the church that don't. The people in the church that do get blessed, the people in the church they don't get blessed. And there's this, there's this warfare within the church. Just give to God, love the Lord, give to Him, He'll take care of the rest. We don't hang up nothing over people's heads. Paul goes on to talk about spiritual wisdom and understanding. This is not something separate from knowledge. The knowledge is doctrinal, which the rest of this book talks about, the first three chapters, the first two chapters. We'll speak about this next week, in two weeks. And then it becomes ethical in chapter three and chapter four. Okay? So it's doctrinal, the knowledge of God, and it's ethical. How do you apply the doctrine of God to your life? Because behavior comes from right understanding. There's no right behavior without right understanding of God. They trade the truth of God for a lie. They worship the creature rather than the creator. And they, they exercise every profound and perverted uh, carnal desire there was. Because they did not have a right understanding of God. Right behavior always begins with a right 
understanding of God. It's imperative that the church have a grasp of who Christ is and what he has done for us. When we know this, it will be applied to our life in spiritual wisdom and understanding. Spiritual wisdom and understanding is applying the knowledge of God to every circumstance of our life. That's what it is. It's truth applied to life. When a Christian has a full knowledge of the will of God in Christ, who Christ is as divine, as the fullness of divinity dwells in him, what Christ has done for them in salvation, full and free, they're complete in him, what he is doing in their life now, sanctification, as Paul says, as you received him, walk in him by faith, and what he has promised to do in the future, that's glorification, that's the hope laid up for you in heaven. That is what we need a steady diet of year in and year out of our life. We need to grow up on who Christ is. Then the rest of their life, they and us will conduct all our behavior around these truths. Our life starts to reflect the truth we believe. That's spiritual wisdom and understanding differentiated from knowledge. Knowledge leads to the application in our life, which is spiritual wisdom and understanding in all life situations to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. Can you see it? It's not out there in some abstract way. We feast on Christ. We see how Christ pleased the Father. He always hears me, Jesus says, because I always do that which is what? Pleasing to him. That's what it means to be Christ-like. Not to walk on water. Not to feed 15,000 people with a couple of loaves and a couple of fishes. Not to cast out the demons. It would be nice. You know what's nicer? A life that's pleasing to God. That we can have. We can truly have that on the inside. So spiritual wisdom and understanding is the whole process, and don't miss this, of discernment that goes on in the Christian's heart and mind as he approaches life in this world so that we can enjoy life, our salvation, and enjoy God without drowning. You with me? Remember the illustration? Pools are nice for children. Oceans are nice. Lakefront property is nice, but if you can't swim, it's dangerous. Jesus is wonderful. The cross is great. Holy Spirit's wonderful. The fruit of the Spirit's great. But if you don't have a proper understanding, you know something? I might not enjoy God. If I can tell you how many Christians I sat down with who were saved for many years that will tell me I don't enjoy God. That's a horrible thought. What is it from? Well, you know, I don't feel like I'm pleasing to him. I got this guilty conscience all the time. I'm always struggling in my mind. It's like, all right, let's go back to basics. Let's go back to the knowledge, the full knowledge of the will of God. Jesus qualified you. Jesus rescued you. Jesus transferred you. You're fully complete him. Let's start from there. Let's grow 
from there. Get the focus off yourself. Get the focus that you didn't give too much or you gave too little. Get your focus all that. Get your focus on Christ and watch what happens to your heart. For some people, that's hard to get over. Some people really feel like they, they, they struggle with, they're always failing God. And yeah, we do fail God at times. We grieve the Holy Spirit. And when we do, we go back to square one. Jesus qualified me. Jesus died for me. Jesus transferred me. Jesus rescued me. I go back. I get the tears in my eyes. I go back to God. I say, God, thank you. Thank you for washing my feet again. Thank you. Are you enjoying God? I really want to think about that question. That's a deep question. Are you really enjoying God? We should have that. This naturally leads to verse 10. It's a life that's pleasing to the Lord. This pleasing life begins on the inside. From the knowledge of God. The full knowledge of God and His will begins to have a life pleasing on the inside. It has an expression on an outside. Paul says, give thanks to God joyfully. It's a daily moment-to-moment song in our heart of pleasing the Lord. The world doesn't understand that. There's this peacefulness, there's this contentment, there's this satisfaction with life, a satisfaction with being a Christian, just trusting in Jesus. That's enjoying God. That's a life that begins to bear fruit. You can't run out and bear fruit. I had a young Christian saying, I want to do this, I want to do that. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Enjoy God and watch what happens. Remind yourself every day of what Christ has done for you. But Brian, I, I, Pastor, I mess up. No, no, just keep on reminding yourself. Remind yourself what Jesus did for you. Remind yourself what Jesus has done for you. Remind that you're qualified and accepted by the Father through the Son. Remind yourself of the blood that covers all your sins. Remind yourself, if you find yourself sinning, go to Father. Confess your sins to God. That's all. You have an advocate with the Father, the righteous one. Enjoying God. I'll speak about these things next week, but it's all founded on three outstanding truths. Only the Christian faith talks about what God has done, then gives the imperative or the commandment to do what pleases God. We're not told this is how you please God, this is how you get saved. We're told about a Savior that rescued us. We're told about a Savior that qualified us now, even though we're not Jews, to be part of the kingdom of God. Though we didn't seek Him, He sought us. Though we didn't love Him, He loved us. Though I didn't obey Him, He forgave me. All this because of His Son. This is the gospel message. This is what changes the heart. This is what gets people to do, uh, to go to the other side of the world, to preach the gospel to people that don't even speak their own language. They'll do anything. For God, this is the truth that set missionaries all around the world. It's what Christ has done for us. Not what we could do for God. That follows. He's delivered us. Christ came as a liberator from sin, Satan, and death. We'll speak about all these things next week. When it comes to the application, we're all saved through an elementary understanding of Christ, all of us. The Colossians were, you were, I was. You know, but we're not to remain in this kindergarten state. 
were to continue to grow, just to know just how incredible he is. After 25 years and, and still working on the inside of my heart, I just see how tender, how compassionate, how long-suffering our God is. Never pulling back his love and his mercy from us. Never for a moment leaving us or forsaking us. Never could deny us, even at our low times when we're faithless. And we look up, he's just like, come back, child. Come back, child. I'm not going to lord it over you. Just come back. Come back home. I saw what you did. Forget about it. Just come back home. That's the kind of God we have. But unfortunately, I feel in American churches that many Christians are still living under an elementary kindergarten mentality of God. Some people rather let everybody else do the legwork for them and and regurgitate it. And Sunday should be uh, a time where John and myself and other preachers would spend countless hours in prayer and study to bring a word that's going to pierce our hearts. But, you know, it needs to lead to a proper self-motivation in understanding who God is. Knowledge, theology, doctrine. It's unfortunately have a negative connotation today. Some kind of dry and dusty, antiquated religion. When I first got saved, it was Bible. I mean, it was church. It was Sunday school. It was small groups. It, it was prayer. It was all this kind of stuff. It wasn't just this big theatrical Sunday, boom, you know, get your heart filled and go home the rest of the week. It was constantly being nourished and nurtured by Christ throughout the whole week. Study and prayer in small groups were, were uh, uh, imperative to our growth in Christ. As the years went on, John actually approached one pastor and said, you know, we don't do all these things anymore. He says, well, it doesn't work. Small groups don't work. A Bible study an hour before church doesn't work. You know, people don't want that anymore. Well, that's nice. God wants it. God wants it. I'm not going to worry about what the people want. God wants this. This is knowing the full knowledge of his will. And it's from here we learn how to, a life pleasing to God. A question. Is Sunday the only real day you feel close to God? Is Sunday the the only real day you feel close to the words of scripture? Is it the only day you feel the thanksgiving in your heart to sing to the Lord? It's fine if we should all have that, I do. But is it the only day? Then we have to ask, is is America the land of opportunity or is it the land of distractions? As American Christians, what's the distraction? What's stealing? A growing in the full knowledge of his will. Can we question ourselves? Can we say, you know, something that, you know, I, I, you know it's, it's all too much for me. Can I slow down my life to make time, quality time, to hear the voice of the Lord in a prayer meeting, in a Bible study? Those are deep questions we need to reflect on. Faith and devotion to God have to rise above earthly distractions for us to grow in Christ. Chapter 3, verse 1. 
Keep your mind on things above where Christ is seated, not on things below. It's a distraction. We have to learn to put ourselves in a position to hear from the Lord, to grow from the Lord, to be pleasing to the Lord, to enjoy the Lord. I'll speak more about this next week, uh, but I want to close with just one thought. The Christian gospel is indicative first, imperative second. Do you understand that concept? Every command in the New Testament only comes after what Christ has already done for us. We don't do anything to please God. We don't do anything to get anything from God. We do everything because God has already done it for us. That's the indicative. It's already done. The imperative now is now I want to follow what Christ has done for me. That's what Paul is preaching here. We'll speak more about that next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have qualified us. And that needs to be first and foremost in our mind, in our heart, that we are not qualified for an inheritance in heaven and not in hell. We thank you, Father God, that you rescued us. And we all know our own past here. I know what you rescued me from, Father. We all know what you rescued us from. You know the darkness we were all in. You know the lies and the manipulations and the no hope and the false understanding of you we once had. And you rescued us from the power of sin, the power of Satan, and you have rescued us from the fear of death. And now, Father God, you have transferred us in the kingdom of your beloved Son, the good shepherd of our soul, always compassionate, always kind, always caring, always merciful, this heavenly high priest, Father God, that's always alive to make intercession for us, who himself has been tempted in all ways without sin, so that he can be compassionate towards us, God. What kind of God are you? How incredible you are, God. God, always remind us of just how awesome it is to be a Christian. And teach our hearts, Father God, nurture our hearts in the doctrines of grace so that we can properly please you in Jesus' name.